Hi, my name is Noah, and you are listening to the Eerie Podcast. A lot of times, people will hear about stories where someone survives something tragic, but you never think it's going to happen to you. In the case of Holly Dunn, this actually happened to her one night when she was going back to a party. She had an unfortunate meeting with what people would call later the railroad killer. How did Holly survive? And what made this killer want to attack her and her boyfriend Chris? Hey guys, I am back. I wanted to say I am sorry for the long delay in a new episode, but I am back and ready to do some weekly episodes. So this episode is going to be posted on Thursday, but the next episode will be posted the following Sunday as usual. So I do want to throw out there that it is just me right now. Brennan just needed to take a break from doing the podcast and he may return, but I want to be clear that he may not. I'm hoping he will because I've, I like doing it with another person, but I feel like we can still have some fun. It's just you and me guys, whoever. Yeah. You, you, you who's listening right now. So today we are going to be talking about Holly Dunn and I wanted to throw out there that this does have some talk of sexual violence. If you need to, you can skip this episode. I will, however, give a warning before the sexual violence happens. So just a heads up, we will have that in here. And obviously this is a true crime podcast. So we will have some talk of murder as well. So just being clear with everybody. Our next step, few episodes will be more spooky centric. <laughs> they will be focused around some like creepy stuff. I will announce what we're doing next week at the end of this, but I just wanted to throw out there that this will be the last true crime one for a little bit, and we're going to just focus on the spooky season stuff for now. All right. So without further ado, let's jump in. So Holly and Chris were college lovebirds, according to everybody else. So Holly and Chris started dating while she was a junior at the University of Kentucky and their campus was on the center. Their campus was in Lexington, Kentucky. So Holly first started at the University of Kentucky in fall of 1995 to study account because she wanted to work at her father's hotel business. Eventually Holly, you know, changed her major to finance. And after her sophomore year, she, you know, took some summer classes to catch up on some of her prerequisites. So Holly's college life was pretty typical. She stayed in a, you know, off-campus apartment with a few roommates and it was like a three bedroom <laughs> and one bathroom. And she described it in her book, which everyone should go check out. It's called Soul Survivor. Links, the link will be in the show notes below. But anyway, apartment was discussed. It had like the grossest shower. It was tiny, had like chip ceramic. The walls were, you know, caked with mildew and the kitchen sink was like full of dishes all the time. <laughs> the living room was also not great and they didn't have much decor because you know, they're college students. 
But Holly didn't care how gross and disgusting it was. She had fun anyway. She was like having a blast. She was living her college life. So the evening she met Chris, her best friend, Annie was turning 21 and she wanted to take her out for her first legal drink. So they went to go to TGI Fridays. Holly had been using her sister's ID. She was not 21. Bad. Don't do that if you're under 21. But they went to TGI Fridays and her sister's ID did not work. And the bartender turned her down and then refused her friend who was actually 21 <laughs> as well. So obviously they were frustrated and they didn't really know what to do. So they ended up at a Buffalo Wild Wings and it was called BW3 or B-dubs by the people who lived there. <laughs> the bar was dark and a bit of like a dive bar. And when they were there, the only other people in the restaurant were six guys from school. And Holly was like one of those people that you would talk to strangers. So she ended up, there's like six other guys there and she ended up chatting them up while she was talking to a guy named Brian. The conversation turned to the silver polish on her toenails. She wore that color all the time at that point. Then this tall, extremely cute guy was listening to her banter. He stuck out his foot and said, I have silver toenail polish on too. <laughs> and that guy was Chris Meyer. It might be Mayer. I might be slaying this last name, so I apologize. But so they just started talking and she learned that he was from North Canton, Ohio. And Chris was studying lighting design in you know, the University of Kentucky's theater department. He actually started the same year that Holly did. And the only difference is he turned 21 earlier that June. But they talked for a while. They liked talking. And they left the bar at the same time as the other the group of guys. She invited them to their place for Annie's birthday party the next night. Holly on the way home was like, oh yeah, I'm freaking am so into this guy. He's so cute. And they definitely had a connection. After this point, Chris and Holly were two peas in a pod. They were always together. And they felt an unbelievably strong connection. You know, like those friends that you knew were going to be together forever. That's what they're like. They were inseparable and they loved each other very much. In late August of 1977, Holly Dunn was a student at the University of Kentucky. It was the second night of classes. It was a Thursday. And she decided to go to a party with her boyfriend, Chris Meyer. And this party wasn't too far from campus. So when they were at this party, they thought it was a little boring. So they packed up and grabbed some beers and they just went down to the railroad tracks to, you know, do something else because the party was a bore, <laughs> which is fair, right? <laughs> Her and Chris at the railroad tracks just talked for a while. They eventually got up to leave and go back to the party. And when they started walking along the tracks, they got to an electrical box beside the tracks and a man came out and started asking for money. And 
they were just poor college kids. They didn't have money. So they told this guy, hey, yeah, we're just college kids. We don't have money. Sorry. Yeah. It was really dark. You couldn't see very well. So when this guy just came out from behind the electrical box, he was obviously crouched down. And Holly and Chris looked at each other and they're like, what the fuck is going on? This man, after they said they don't have money, the man showed an ice pick. And at least this is what Holly thought it was. It could have also been a screwdriver. And he put it on her boyfriend, Chris, and told him to get down on his hands and knees. This creepy guy went through his backpack, went through Chris's backpack, and didn't find anything he wanted. So Holly after a few minutes of this, realized that, oh, this guy's tying Chris up with his backpack, like using the straps and tying Chris up while he's on his knees with his hands behind his back. Then the gentleman went over to her. And before I go too far into this, obviously they weren't going to fight this guy. They didn't have any means to fight him, but this man had a weapon and he could obviously hurt them. So I think their thought process was, well, if we don't fight back, maybe he'll let us go after. Maybe he just wants to steal our stuff. <laughs> but anyway, after he was done tying Chris up, he took off Holly's belt and tied up her hands behind her back. This gentleman moved Chris from the tracks onto the gravel right beside the tracks. Holly, at this point, was afraid, obviously, like anyone would be. And she was saying prayers. And she was just thinking... I am going to die. Holly kept saying, why are you doing this? What do you want? Do you want credit cards, ATM cards? You can just have our cards parked just down the street. They just wanted to know what this guy wanted. Like, what was his motive here? So because she was talking and asking questions, the attacker ripped his shirt and he gagged them with it. Holly was super smart, and she stuck out her tongue so that the gag wouldn't work, and it just fell off. They had seconds where the attacker would go back up to the tracks, and they would, you know, still be down in the grass. So they would talk to each other and start strategizing. And this was after Chris was able to get his gag out. Holly was able to get her hands untied, and that's how she got the gag out. But she couldn't get her feet untied. So they were talking to each other, trying to figure out how they were going to get away. Her boyfriend kept saying, and I quote, you know, if you can get yourself untied, get away, run away. Because he absolutely could not get his arms untied. They were just so tied up in that backpack. So... After a little bit of time, and Holly said she didn't know how much time, the attacker came down carrying a rock. And he came over and literally just dropped it on Chris's head. At this point, Holly went into survival mode. She was like, okay, I need to, I just saw this man drop a rock on her, her boyfriend's head. Chris was all of a sudden still, he wasn't moving. No sound. 
And right after he dropped it off, the attacker climbed on top of her. And Holly then realized, and I'm going to give a brief warning, this is sexual violence, so if you need to fast forward, you can. But Holly realized that he was going to rape, rape her. This attacker was going to rape her. She tried to hit him. She tried to kick him. And she tried screaming. And that's when he took his weapon and held it to her neck and he said, look how easily I could kill you. And then he stabbed her in the neck. So Holly stopped fighting. Because she, at this point, was like, I can't change what's about to happen. So that's that. While he was defiling her, Holly was smart. She stared at every scar and every tattoo. And she was like, I'm going to remember all this stuff so that I can get him at some point. She even thought to rip off her fingernails, or she tried to. And she was going to, like, dig in the dirt. So if he, like, kidnapped her, someone would see that someone was there. And she started talking to him, even though this man was raping her and hurting her. He, she was like, what are you? Where have you been? What do you need? How can I help you? And she kept saying, I really have a family that wants to see me again. So she was using this to kind of humanize herself and make this man see, hey, I'm a person. Killing me takes me away from all these other people. And she asked questions like, do you have friends? Do you have family? She was begging him, please don't hurt me. And she told him, I will let you go. I won't tell anybody what happened here. Just don't hurt me. <sighs> I want to say that all survivors of things like this, of rape, of attempted murder, of attacks in general, like those people are strong people. Like carrying on after something so horrible happened right before your eyes and to your body. It's unbelievable how powerful these people are after, especially, especially in the cases where their body has been defiled like this. I think this more commonly happens to women, but like, it's just so powerful and I wish that none of this ever happened. It's fucked up, <laughs> but I think it's amazing that this woman kept fighting and she was smart during this situation. It's hard to do that. You know that you're in a situation that's going to change you for the rest of your life and still thinking of those small details, like putting her fingers in the dirt and humanizing herself and like taking in all the information that she can about what he looked like, like how the sound of his voice, like doing that, it's like, it's not easy to do. So this man started hitting her after she begged, please don't hurt me. And she doesn't remember being hit, but she was hit with some sort of wooden board and she put up her hand to block it. But she was hit five or six times in the front of her face and then she turned over and she was hit five or six times on the back of her head. And the man knocked her unconscious. So at this time, her breathing was shallow enough where he had thought that he killed her. But Holly was not dead. 
obviously he left and she didn't know because she was unconscious how long she was there, but she got up at some point and she was injured. She knew she was injured. She didn't know what those injuries were, but she did realize that her mouth wasn't shutting correctly and she was covered in blood. So at this point, Holly started walking along the tracks. Then Holly would be found by a gentleman. And I'll go into that in a moment. But Holly knew that Chris was dead. So at this point, when Holly had finally gotten up, it was about one or two in the morning. It was this man, Chad Goatiz. Goats. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. Correct me if you can, or if you know how to say it. <laughs> this man, Chad, was just sitting in his chair, studying. And out of the corner of his eye, he just saw something go across the front yard. It was Holly. She was covered in blood from head to toe, and he couldn't figure out where all the blood had come from or was coming from. Her face, it looked like a boxer, he said, whenever they get cut during a boxing match. And at that point, he brought her in and set her down on the couch, and she collapsed. He thought she was going to die. There was no doubt in his mind. He kept losing her a little bit here and there. He just kept talking to her because he didn't want her to pass out. He was just trying to keep her awake until the paramedics got there. Holly kept saying, my friend's still out there, you know, and be sure they know that my friend's still out there. My friend's still out there. It's sad. She lost someone that she loved very much. And she was also violated and her, she was a different person after this. Like there's no way around that. She was a survivor and she, she also knew that this man was still out there, you know, potentially doing this to another person. So later on, detective Craig Sorrell on August 29th, 1997 received a call at about three in the morning that there had been an attack on two students along the railroad tracks. His lieutenant asked him to come out and said it was a bad one. So Craig Sorrell, or the detective, was sent over to the University of Kentucky Hospital to check in on the victim. On the way, he learned that her name was Holly Dunn. Holly's sister, Heather Dunn Nimineer, Nim I'm so bad at last names. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. Heather said that her sister Holly's face was distorted. She had a broken eye socket, a broken jaw, and so her face looked really off. It was bruised, lots of cuts across her face, and then, of course, staples that they used to stop the bleeding from when she was stabbed in the neck. They couldn't even cut her hair to do the staples. They just had to staple on top of it, apparently. And with her sister looking the way she did, Heather felt like an overwhelming feeling of gratitude that her sister was alive. And her Heather felt so guilty not to have been there. All right, Eerie Tribe. I'm so excited to talk about today's sponsor, Audible. Audible is, <laughs> I 
can honestly say that I use Audible on a daily level. I read a lot, but sometimes I don't have time to just read or maybe I'm, you know, hitting the hay and I need to put the book down and just listen for a little bit. New members can actually try Audible for free for 30 days using our link. As an Audible member, you can choose one title per month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. You can find some $50 audiobooks and get them super cheap by just having this Audible membership. There's so many Audible exclusives as well that you can only listen to on Audible. You'll discover exclusive Audible originals from top celebrities, renowned experts, and exciting new voices in audio, which I might be one of those soon. But for real, anything you're interested in, you can find it on Audible. There's so much on Audible that you can check out. If you visit audibletrial.com slash theeriepod, you can get one free month and one free book that you get to keep forever. So check it out, guys. Strongly recommend it. So when Holly finally, you know, started to heal up and come around, she remembers asking about Chris because no one was talking about him. And she eventually just asked her dad and she was like, Chris is dead, isn't he? And her dad was like, yeah, he is. Holly had a, obviously had a hard time accepting that. She got to live through this and her boyfriend didn't. And she said she felt like it wasn't fair that she was still alive. Chris was one of those people, you know, just that friendly guy that was super laid back and very down to earth. I mean, she met him with silver nail polish <laughs> and Chris loved the outdoors. He didn't have a care in the world. He loved he was just one of those happy-go-lucky people that you just magnetize to. Holly loved him, and he was a really big, important part of her life, even though they were together for just a short time. She couldn't attend the funeral because she was in the hospital still. She never felt like she had the chance to say goodbye, and she wanted to find peace, but she just couldn't. She was obviously in a bad state physically. So the detectives obviously came around to ask questions. Despite her, what state she was in, she wanted to communicate. She wanted to talk about what happened. So she disclosed that her attacker had an accent. And it sounded like he came from Mexico. He had a snake tattoo on his arm. And he had really dark eyes, like dead eyes. Holly said he was probably about five foot six or five eight. He had wavy black hair and was wearing glasses. And he was not a muscular man, but he seemed wiry, according to her. So Hollywood, like I said, was in a bad state. They had to literally repair her jaw because it was unhinged. And they had to wire her mouth shut. For the broken eye socket, there was nothing they could do. And as soon as she could get the surgery to get her jaw wired shut and her jaw fixed, her parents took her home. Holly said that her sister was her rock throughout this process and after everything that she went through. And she was a big, important part because she didn't, Heather, her sister, didn't let her 
just stick in bed. She, her Holly herself was amazing and didn't want to stay in bed, but she also wanted to. I mean, how could you not? You're like, you just went through something so tragic and so scarring. How could you not want to get out of bed? <laughs> so fast forward to 14 months after the attack in December of 1998. There was a doctor that was you know murdered in the houston area she suffered stab wounds and a blunt trauma to the head and she was also the victim of a sexual assault then a pastor and his wife were killed in waymar texas and the pastor and his wife were murdered in their bed with a sledgehammer that was found in a tool room there at their house and at this point they were starting to put together that you know, there must be a serial killer out and about. A lot of the same types of tools used to hurt people. So the signs were there. One thing that they noticed that was that a lot of these attacks were happening within a certain distance of railroad tracks, a specific, you know, connecting railroad track. And when they compared the details of the cases around this railroad track, they were 100%. We have a serial killer. They ran a fingerprint analysis and found a suspect. And he was identified as Rafael Resendez Ramirez. A lot of these attacks that happened in Holly and these other two attacks were not the only ones. There was actually a lot more. A lot of this guy's attacks were by surprise. There often were people in bed and asleep. So he was kind of like the boogeyman. So at this point, they launched a massive manhunt. And this guy became a national serial killer. And everyone wanted to catch him. Because he was brutally murdering so many people. Eventually, this media named him the railroad killer and that stuck. So the police were like, oh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to start stopping trains. A bunch of Texas agencies participated in this too. They're like, okay, well, we're going to stop these fucking trains and we're going to find this dickwad that wants to kill all these people and rape people. As they were looking for him, this guy kept killing. There was two women in one day, apparently, 90 miles apart. And four days later, he was in a different state killing another person like this guy was he liked to kill he was a monster and we obviously know that from you know what happened to holly holly was really scared it was huge and they couldn't find him they didn't know where he was and obviously everyone around was afraid and holly felt like he was going to come back and get her so holly decided you know what i'm going to go to school in England and she left the country because she just was so afraid. So the FBI eventually put this guy on America's most wanted and they found out that he has a sister. So they went back to talk to her because they had apparently been in touch with her. She had recently talked to her brother and she told them that he was tired and that he might be willing to surrender. His sister kind of became like a liaison in between law enforcement and her brother. 
it was very a very strange dynamic and the police think that his options were just limited everyone except his sister was after him everyone wanted to find him and bring him to justice like literally mexico and the u.s were working together to try and find this guy because they knew that he was coming from mexico and going back after he's killed people so he was like escaping and coming back well that didn't work for him forever so two years after the attack on the texas side of the border of the international bridge which goes into mexico this guy eventually gave into the pressure and and met u.s law enforcement at the border and turned himself in like the police were so worried that day that he wouldn't even show up they're like we don't think this is going to happen so apparently this guy went by a few names and he was linked to six murders in texas two in illinois and one in kentucky but they eventually determined that his real name was angel materino resendez so he kept his last name but changed the first you know two Later on, when Angel was in court, one thing that a lot of law enforcement pointed out was he was scary. He was like a tiny guy, but strong with ropey muscles. And he would look at everybody. He'd look at police officers and there was nothing there, like literally nothing. They said that they saw no humanity in this man's eyes, no emotion. It was like they literally said that it was like somebody took a black magic marker and colored his eyes they were flat black and expressionless according to devin anderson one of the law enforcement officers and people were afraid of him and they wanted this guy a lot of people wanted this guy to be put to death because this guy was actually a monster like no sense of humanity like he acted without horse and he continued to even when he was incarcerated. So Holly was one of the star witnesses. She did want to do this. She wasn't forced. She wasn't, she didn't have to be begged. She wanted to tell what happened and this was her chance. She said that she doesn't think about a lot of that stuff, but the one thing she can never forget is Chris being hit. And she talked about that in the court and she talked about everything that she did to try and make sure that this man knew that she was a human for one and that she did to stay alive by like you know clawing into the ground putting her tongue out so that the the gag wouldn't work and holly was the only surviving person she was literally the only person that this man didn't kill it's crazy and she only survived by luck and by sheer will so angel the murderer obviously pled not guilty because he's insane right even though the evidence was unbelievably overwhelming as to how guilty he was he was going to use the insanity defense a lot of people you know would automatically think wow this person has to be crazy to kill all these people why else would they do that but luckily at the end of all the deliberation they saw all indication that this man knew what he was doing 
he knew how to kill and he knew how to do it smart and he knew how to get away with it. Well, at least for a while. And ultimately, they found him guilty of capital murder. So Holly was terrified to testify because obviously seeing someone who raped you and killed your boyfriend and brutally attacked you, obviously that's scarring. No one wants to do that. But she did want to see justice. She wanted to make sure that this guy didn't get away with murder and didn't get away with a insanity plea. So she had a lot of courage and she did this. And she even said the night before she woke up in the middle of the night screaming and crying because she was so terrified to see this guy's face. She said later on that this was the hardest day of her life. Luckily, Devin Anderson, one of the agents, told her, don't look at him. Look at me. I'll be right in front of you. And he just said not to look at him and make sure to just focus on everyone else that's there to support you. Luckily, she got to get her word in too. <laughs> she was able to say, and I quote, you didn't destroy me. And she also got to say, I'm still here. I'm still strong. And I'm still the person I was. She told all the details of what she remembered. And she cried the whole time, but she got to get her justice. So when Angel Resendez was finally given a verdict, he was sentenced to death. And he was on death row until 2006. He did file an appeal before that, but it was denied. Thank goodness. For Holly, that helped her a lot push forward. And it really put an end to all those angry feelings that she had because she knew that there was justice and that this guy couldn't hurt other people, which was the most important thing to her. Holly's life focus changed after this. She had to heal physically, of course. Then she had to deal with grieving Chris and then also dealing with everything that comes with being a survivor of rape and an attack. In 1997, she met a man named Jacob Pendleton at like a store that she was working at. And he ended up becoming the first guy she dated after the attack. Apparently he helped her a lot. Like he helped her get through this and helped her become a person again after, you know, kind of closing off. So Holly eventually married this man and she became a, a public speaker and she would talk about her attack and how you can move on from it and like not to detach the emotion of it. And she now takes a lot of pride in helping other survivors. She started something called Holly's House. It's a child and adult advocacy that provides a safe reporting location for victims of intimate crimes. And it's a nonprofit, and that's in Evansville, Indiana. She opened that on September 2nd, 2008, and they've served 300 victims since that time. Holly became a hero. She literally took what happened to her and made it so that she can help others. She decided to get justice and into build something out of something horrible. And she's helped so many people in the process. 
Not only that, but she's also a acclaimed author. Her book, The Soul Survivor, is available on Amazon if you guys want to check it out. It's not the most expensive book, but I really recommend it. It's a quick read and it gives you a lot of insight on what happened and what she did after all of this. One thing I love about it is she, some of the titles of the chapters are kind of butterfly focused. Like, you know, she was a caterpillar and then she was in a chrysalis and then she came out as a butterfly. It just screamed to me, like everyone's been through those moments, obviously not in the same way she has, but I just loved it. It was a cute little thing that I noticed as I was reading. It was really cool. So please check it out. I will have a link in the description. All right, guys, that one was a long one and I apologize, but I felt like it was good to get out there and it, it was, it's literally one of my favorite survival stories. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I just love that she went on and a lot of survivors actually do this, but I love that she went on and became a mo motivational speaker and started talking about what happened to her in a way that would help others. And starting Holly's house too, like that's fantastic. That's amazing. I really hope you guys love this. And if you want to learn more, check out that book. So next week, we are going to be talking about Bloody Mary. And we're going to do a little bit of history behind it and where it potentially came from. But also, we're going to do a couple of short stories that I found online where people feel like they actually met an entity while doing this. If you like this episode, please make sure to follow us on social media. We have Facebook, facebook.com slash the eerie podcast, twitter.com slash the eerie podcast, and instagram.com slash the eerie podcast. If you want to check out our website, it's www.theeeriepodcast.com. And if you want to send us an email, you can do that by emailing info at theeeriepodcast.com. Please make sure to follow us if you want to get notifications that we have new episodes out. We will be posting every Sunday going forward. And like I said, at the beginning of this, Sunday won't be this upcoming Sunday, but the week Sunday after. And make sure to leave us some love, Apple Podcasts or even on Audible. That would be awesome too. I would love to hear some feedback, whether it's good or bad. I want to do the best I can and anything you got, throw it at me. All right. All right. I appreciate you guys. Have a great weekend and welcome to spooky season. All right. Bye.